I pray, Lord, that in those moments where we are crying, possibly even crying out to you, crying against life, I pray you'll whisper gently to our spirits to open our eyes, to see you, and open our ears that we might hear you. And I pray that we will experience peace as a result. That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the Gospel of Luke. If you're a Bible nerd, the first part of this message, man, I am telling you, it is for you. And I say that as a Bible nerd myself. The things that we're about to look at, they're the kind of things that just make your mind go, wow, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Now, if you're not a Bible nerd, maybe you think to yourself, yeah, I've hung out around some of you people and it's just not my thing. Well, I'm hoping you get pulled in with the rest of us this morning and you become just a bit nerdy by the time this is over because this is, this is cool stuff, it really is. Luke chapter 19, I'm going to read a passage for you that if you grew up in the church, you've heard over and over and over again. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you are very familiar with this. So it's not going to take you off guard in that regard, but it may knock you a little off balance as we get into it. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." Now, when I read this this week, I knew I wanted to share this passage, but when I read it the first time, I found myself saying, what am I going to share about Zacchaeus that people haven't heard? What am I going to share about Zacchaeus that I really want them to grab hold of in regard to the message that I was putting together? I knew I wanted to use the passage. I just wasn't positive how I wanted to use it. So I applied a Bible study technique that I've told you about through the years, but it's been a while since we've talked about it. It is an extremely good Bible study tool. If you've never done this, I encourage you to try it. It will take you into inductive Bible study in ways that you may never have gone before, and it's very simple. All you do is find a passage of Scripture. When you read it, put a little check mark or a little X by anything that captures your attention. Anything that you're curious about, you just put a little check mark. Use a pencil so you can erase it, just a little check mark, and then go on through your passage. When you come to something else that captures your attention, put a little check mark next to it. When you've finished the passage, go back to your check marks and start exploring them. You dig out as much as you possibly can about those things that you were curious about. So I did that this week. 
I took this passage of Scripture that I am wildly familiar with. I grew up with this passage. I have taught it over and over and over again, but I wanted to see something fresh and new in it. So I applied this inductive Bible study technique, and boy, am I happy I did. Let me share with you some of the things that I found. The first check mark that I put was in verse 2. It's right next to this word. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. I put a check mark next to and was rich because that is a unique detail that Luke calls out in this passage. Now, of course, he starts out by saying he was a chief tax collector. Now, a little bit of biblical background will help you understand that. Tax collectors during those days were scoundrels. They were absolute scoundrels. They had a government authority. Now, let me make sure you understand that. They had a government authority, not a government position. So they were not paid by the government. They were paid as tax collectors by commission, if you will. The only way that they got any money was by overtaxing people, skimming off of the top, keeping for themselves what they could get from other people that the government didn't require. That's how they did it. They were thieves. They were crooks. The best way we could illustrate that, they would, they would be known as the mafia during those days. Most of these tax collectors more than likely traveled with thugs to help enforce what they were trying to do. So they were very, very crooked. Now, interestingly, Luke would tell us that Zacchaeus was not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He was very good at what he did. Now, we read on through the passage and learn that he is Jewish, working for the Roman government, which means he carried a title of publican. He was a publican. He had a public position but he was not officially paid by the Roman government. Does that make sense? And now he is a chief among the other publicans. He was a chief among the tax collectors. If you think about it as a pyramid scheme, those other tax collectors went out, collected taxes, and they paid him a percentage of what they collected. So it was not just the money that he collected, it was the money that the people working for him collected. All of that came to Zacchaeus, and he was rich. He was rich. He had a lot of money. Luke wanted to make sure that we knew that. But I understood all the tax collecting side of this. That, that wasn't anything groundbreaking for me. I wanted to learn a, a little bit more about why Luke would make sure that he got this detail there for us. And I found it tied next to a location, geography. Take a look here. He entered Jericho. So I was curious to know why he was rich and a chief tax collector in Jericho. Why are those two details so important? Oh, man, this is good stuff. You hang on to the saddle horn for this ride. Here you go. Jericho today is under Palestinian control. It is an absolutely horrid place. It's ugly. It has been wiped out through the years and not really rebuilt. Those of you that have been to Jericho, shake your head yes. It's a horrible place under Palestinian control on the West Bank. But during the days of Jesus, it was different. It was an oasis. 
Remember, it was the first place that the children of Israel went into when they went into the promised land. When Moses looked down onto the promised land, even though he wasn't able to enter it, he saw the oasis of Jericho, and he saw that it was beautiful. There were balsam trees and balsam shrubs all around that area. Gorgeous place during those days. The balsam trees had a specific medicinal and aromatic use. The people that lived there figured it out, and they started mining or logging, if you will, those uses from the balsam trees and the shrubs, producing a medicine known as the balm of Gilead. It came from Jericho. That's where this balm came from. People all over the known world wanted to get their hands on the balm of Gilead. It was known to heal all kinds of different diseases. If you had open wounds, it was almost an antibiotic of sorts that you would rub on that open wound and it would help heal it. It was used to help with arthritis. People that had arthritis in different joints would rub the balm of Gilead on their joints and they would find nearly instant relief from it. Not only was it known to be a medicine, a pharmaceutical, it was also used as a perfume. Apparently, when you sprayed it on something or maybe you burned it in a lamp, it put off a wonderful aroma. So people all over the land wanted the balm of Gilead. They were exporting that balm out of Jericho by the camel load. He was rich. Why was he rich? Because he was taxing the balm of Gilead. Now, that's just a little bit of practical information for you. Let's make it spiritual. How many of you grew up in church singing an old hymn called, There is a Balm in Gilead? Some of you know what we're talking about. comes directly from the Old Testament. The book of Genesis and the book of Jeremiah both talk about the balm in Gilead. The latter of those two, the book of Jeremiah, the old prophet, would use the balm of Gilead to illustrate the coming of the Messiah. During the days of the Babylonian exile and the brokenness of the Hebrew people, Jeremiah says, you need a balm like the balm of Gilead. And that balm is coming. That bomb is coming. It's the Messiah, the Savior. So now here's Jesus in Jericho and Zacchaeus, the one that is taxing the bomb of Gilead, who is Jewish by birth and fully aware of all of the metaphorical illustration of the bomb of Gilead, has heard that the Messiah is coming. And he wants to get to him. He wants to get to him. Now, I want to make sure that, that you're understanding what I'm saying with the balm of Gilead, so we'll just put it up here on the screen. That is of the utmost importance if you want to study it out. Go back to the book of Jeremiah. We don't have enough time today to get into that, but go back into the book of Jeremiah and see what Jeremiah says about that balm. And then you can actually do a historical study of it. The tragedy is this. In the year 70 AD, when the Romans marched against the Holy Lands, Jericho not being that far from Jerusalem, they wiped out those groves of balsam trees and all of the shrubs. They're gone. They're gone. The balm of Gilead will not come back until Jesus returns. But that's part of the, the depth of this passage, understanding that Zacchaeus was profiting off of the balm of Gilead and he was rich. But yet there was obviously an emptiness within him. 
there was obviously a hole that couldn't be filled by all of that money. So when Jesus was coming to town, he was curious. He was curious. In fact, take a look at what the Bible says about it in the passage we just read. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Well, that tells us a lot that we already know about Zacchaeus. He wasn't a big man, at least not in stature. But you can imagine that he walked around Jericho pretty puffed up because of his wealth and because of his position. But now a crowd had gathered and he had to do what we've all heard of Zacchaeus doing. He had to climb that tree. But, but before we get into that, let's pay close attention to this. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. I put a check mark next to that. My question, why? Why? Was it simply that a crowd was gathering and he was curious to know what was going on in his community? Is that why? Because he had been around long enough to know that if a crowd gathered, you ought to pay attention. Maybe he was a tax collector. There was business going on. He was going to collect some taxes. Is that what it was? Well, it doesn't seem consistent with everything else that we read in this. So maybe, just maybe, the reason that he was curious is because Jesus had a particular interest in tax collectors. And there are two different times called out by Dr. Luke where Jesus had an interchange or someone speaking on behalf of the Lord had an interchange with tax collectors. Now let me show them to you real quick. Keep your finger there in Luke 19, but join me in Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus to come. He's doing some teaching out in the wilderness, and people are coming to hear him. If you pick up in verse 10, after John has been teaching that the Messiah is coming, that Jesus is on his way, people started to ask questions. Verse 10, and the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Now listen to this. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So John the Baptist, even prior to Jesus, started to tell the tax collectors that when Jesus comes into your life, there's going to have to be some dramatic changes. Because of Jesus, you're going to have to change your ways. He started to lay that out. Jesus would build on it when he was putting together the 12 disciples. This is found in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it is entirely possible that through these two different interchanges, one with John the Baptist and one with Jesus, Zacchaeus had gotten wind that the Messiah was coming and his name was Jesus. And he had a message for tax collectors. 
There's no biblical account and no historical account, extra biblical account, that says that Zacchaeus was present in either one of those places. But you can trust that this little circle of tax collectors, because they were so despised, they were so hated by culture and society and everyone they lived around, they communicated with one another. And at the calling of Levi... Word got out. There was a huge gathering of tax collectors in Levi's house. And when they all went back to work, the gossip mill got going. And can't you imagine what that sounded like? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus had made his way to Jericho before Jesus ever made his way to Jericho, if that makes sense. And then we we find Zacchaeus waiting for him. I hear he's coming, and he wanted to make sure that he got there. When he did, he does the most interesting thing and in the process experiences something quite supernatural. Let's get back into that. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. This most interesting thing that Zacchaeus did can be summed up this way. He tanked his reputation. He tanked his reputation. Now, just so we're all on the same page, let's make sure that we are all thinking the same way about what reputation really is. This is a pretty good definition of it. It's the overall quality or character as seen or judged by people in general. So your reputation is measured that way. It is the overall quality or character of you as seen or judged by people in general. Well, up to this point before Jesus, you can imagine how they judged Zacchaeus' character. He was a publican, not just a publican, but a chief publican. He was a thug. He was a thief. He was a scoundrel. He was a bandit. Let's try that. Oh, now we're back. We'll see how far that goes. <clears throat> so that was his reputation prior to Jesus coming. But remember, he was also Jewish. Everybody remember that? Shake your head yes. So when he tanked his reputation, he chose to break with all tradition. The Bible says that he did two things that no one would ever do. No Jewish man in good standing in the region of Jericho would even think of doing these two things. Number one, he ran. That was completely against culture. Adults did not run. Men really did not run. And number two, he climbed a tree. So if men don't run, they don't climb trees. It was not socially acceptable. Culturally, it was something no one would ever do, particularly someone seen as important 
A publican would never think of doing that. But it was so important to Zacchaeus to get to Jesus that he broke with tradition and tanked his reputation. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? In my curiosity, I found myself thinking that it's entirely possible that word had gotten to him about something that Jesus had said. This is found in Luke chapter 18, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We can see through the story of Zacchaeus, this tiny little record that we have in the 19th chapter of Luke, that he was willing to do whatever it was God told him to do. And so maybe he had heard this and he said, I'll come to you like a little child. It's entirely possible. But maybe it was the hole in his heart and in his life that drove him to break with tradition the way he did. Maybe Zacchaeus was tired of money. He was tired of that hamster wheel and chasing it. Maybe he had gotten wind of something Jesus had to say about those things as well. This is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. Well, we'll start in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So it's entirely possible that Zacchaeus had heard those two things. He needed to come as a little child and he needed to understand the things that God would call an abomination. And in order to truly come to Jesus, he had to make a choice to leave an old way of life. So he did, oh boy, did he, and he tanked his reputation, no longer caring how people saw him. Oh, he knew that they saw him as a little man, but he didn't allow that to remain as the only definition. He walked around with his Roman thugs. He was a big man, at least he thought he was, but now he realized that in the presence of Jesus, he wasn't. We all get to that place where we have to realize that in the presence of Jesus, You're not a big man. You're not a person of importance. Not at least in the beginning. You are, however, incredibly important to him. You are incredibly significant to him. So much so that he would die for you. And he would teach us that these things that culture and society say are important, they're really not. What's important is relationship with Him. Relationship that will last well beyond your years on this earth. They will last or it will last forever. So he broke with tradition and tanked his reputation. I like the way Max Lucado captures this idea. One can't at once promote two reputations. Promote God's and forget yours. Or promote yours and forget God's. We must choose. Zacchaeus chose. And he tanked his reputation, publicly turned his life upside down. How would you ever get respect again by doing what he did? It didn't matter. It didn't matter. And because it didn't matter, and he did this most interesting thing by running and climbing a tree, he got to experience the supernatural. And when he experienced the supernatural, We got some doctrinal lessons. I'll show you what I mean. Let's go back to Luke 19 together.
We're going to pick up verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now the supernatural part of this actually begins in verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. On the surface, it would appear that Zacchaeus was the driving force behind this divine appointment. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. In modern Christianity, we have placed an undue burden on people to believe that it is your responsibility to seek out Jesus, that it all rests on you. And we have put a whole lot of teaching into the idea of what it means to seek God, to chase after God. Well, doctrinally, that is upside-down teaching and upside-down thinking because pay close attention to this in verse 10. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It is God who seeks out the lost sinner. Today, He often does that through the church. God is seeking out lost sinners through the church. And He's looking for people that are primed for a relationship, but that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit is preparing someone's heart for a divine appointment, that appointment is going to happen because Jesus is seeking out those who are lost that He might welcome them into salvation, into relationship with Him. The burden is not on us, the burden is on Him and He takes it very, very seriously. The only burden that we have rests in this question, what do you do when the Lord invites himself to your house. By the way, in the four Gospels, this is the only time that we find Jesus inviting himself to someone's house. This is the only time. But in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, we find a deep teaching that tells us the Lord does it all the time. Why don't you join me in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Again, these are Jesus' words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's what it means when Jesus is seeking the lost, when he is looking for those that are lost. He's standing at the door knocking all the time. If you're not a Christian, then you could look back and ask yourself why you're here today. It's because Jesus was knocking on the door. If you're a new Christian, you can probably vividly remember the sound of that knock. You can remember what it was like when you opened the door and there was Jesus. Maybe you were dealing with a hole in your heart like Zacchaeus was. Maybe you were dealing with an emptiness. Maybe you were dealing with a hollowness and you just didn't know what would fill it and you found the Lord. Well, that's because Jesus said, today I'm coming to your house. And you said, okay. And you opened the door. And you invited him in. That's what it means for Jesus to seek and to save the lost. If you've been a Christian a long time, you may very well remember those same moments where Jesus was knocking on the door and you opened the door and you welcomed him in. The burden is not on us. The burden is on him and he takes it very seriously. The only thing that rests on us is whether we open the door or not. That's it. Or do we just keep the door closed and say, not, not today, Lord, not today. 
And then Jesus comes back and he knocks again and we have this choice. Sometimes we look through the peephole and there's the Lord again and we say, not today, Lord, not today. Or we open the door and he comes in and fellowship is established and relationship is established just like it was for Zacchaeus. Today he became a Christian. Today he was saved, Jesus says. Salvation came to his house because he responded to the Lord's invitation. It's a simple question for us. Have we? Have we? Well, one of the ways to know is what do you do with your life? Do you see what Zacchaeus did? Do you remember that part as we were reading through it? A lot of times we get so focused on the short man that climbed the tree so that he could see over the crowd that we lose sight of everything that happens after that point. As soon as Jesus came in, as soon as Jesus came in, Zacchaeus said, see half of everything that I have, I'm, I'm given to the poor. But then he does the most curious thing. Oh, this is curious. Again, this was a check mark in my Bible. Take a look at it. Verse 8. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Want to understand why he did that? Then you have to understand his heritage. Zacchaeus was Jewish. Zacchaeus was familiar with the Old Testament law. Jesus would actually call him a son of Abraham to remind all of us that that's why he would do this. According to Old Testament law, now listen to this, according to Old Testament law, if a person stole something from another individual that could not be restored, then it had to be repaid fourfold, four times. If they stole something that could not be restored, it had to be paid back four times. What could he have taken from people that could not be restored? He was a tax collector, a chief tax collector, and seemingly very good at it. He was a thief. He was a scoundrel. What could he have taken that couldn't be restored? He's already giving half of everything he had. Half of his wealth was going back to the poor anyway. What could he have taken? Dignity from people? So he's going to repay it four times. He may have thrown somebody in jail because they couldn't pay his exorbitant taxes. He took a husband and a father out of a family. He's going to pay it back fourfold. There were people that were executed under his authority because they couldn't pay their taxes. Debtors, prisons were packed because of unpaid taxes. And he's going to pay it back fourfold because the Old Testament law told him to. He wanted to do what was right. He wanted there to be a visible sign of a changed life. So he told Jesus there would be. And there was. There's an authenticity that Scripture would call out about the changed life of a Christian. This is found in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James writes, and let me remind you, James is the half-brother of Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus until after the crucifixion and resurrection. But after that, he writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Zacchaeus is saying, I'm going to put feet to my faith, and you're going to see it, Lord. I want to do what's right. And his faith became authentic. Paul would teach the church in Corinth this very thing when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Zacchaeus moved into a new life. He moved into a new life, an authentic life. Oh, it's so cool to see because He accepted Jesus' invitation. Salvation was a result. And deep teaching came. He experienced the supernatural. And I might offer to you that when Zacchaeus did what he did and told Jesus what he was about to do, there was the Lord saying, way to go. Way to go, Zacchaeus. Way to go. From start to finish, way to go. God was applauding Zacchaeus saying, you tanked your reputation. You have remade yourself into a new person with my help. And today you're representing someone different than the Roman government. You're no longer a publican, you're a Christian. And everything is different. Way to go, my child. He's our biggest fan. And in moments like this, he's there applauding us. When Zacchaeus reinvented himself, when he changed his reputation, he did it through a brand new character trait. Now, do you remember our definition of reputation? Let's take a look again. It's the overall quality or character as seen or judged by people in general. We know how Zacchaeus was judged right up until this meeting with Jesus. But now, Zacchaeus is judged completely different by an overall quality within him. And it is a quality that Jesus loves to applaud, that God loves to applaud. It is the quality of persistence. Persistence. He was persistent. He ran ahead of the crowd and he climbed a tree and he was ready when Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus had already laid the groundwork for what he was going to do. His background and his heritage was already convicting him under the power of the Holy Spirit to change his ways. And the persistence that we saw in salvation was the persistence that would carry through into his authentic faith. Persistence. Persistence is one of those things that God often applauds. Now, I say often because there are some things in the realm of persistence God does not applaud. 
Persistent complaining, God does not applaud that. Persistent sin, God does not applaud that. And the Bible calls both of those things out, complaining and sin. And God says, just stop it. Just stop it. Don't do either one. But there are some persistent things in Scripture that God does applaud, like persistence unto salvation. We're going to put these up on the screen for you, and you can look at some of the passages that we're talking about. Luke chapter 15, verse 7, would tell us how much God actually applauds persistence unto salvation. This is what it sounds like, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When you choose to repent, to turn around and go the other way and change your life, there is celebration in heaven unto salvation. Heaven erupts with joy as God says, way to go, my child. Way to go, my child. Repentance unto salvation brings that about. Persistence in prayer does as well. I love the fact that Scripture teaches us this way. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And he, meaning Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Mankind comes, he will find faith on earth. God loves to applaud persistence in prayer. You may think to yourself, well, I've asked God about this, and I've asked God about this, and I've received no answer. Well, don't stop asking. Because God applauds persistence in prayer. Don't stop asking. You keep praying because God loves that persistence. That's why Paul would teach the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Pray continually. You keep asking because you're just not lined up in God's timing yet. Keep asking. God loves persistence in prayer. Just like he loves persistent faith. Hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 13, reads like this. After giving us a list of those that lived by faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Meaning, very simply, no matter what's happening in your life, you hold your faith intact. Don't let anything take it from you. Don't let anything tear it down. You hold on to your faith because God loves a persistent faith. And sometimes a persistent faith says, I've got to look past the things of this life into the next. I will seek the homeland and what it will be like in His presence. Because right now i got some struggles. 
I have some challenges, but I'm going to look past them to what waits. God applauds a persistent faith. And that's why he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And God applauds. He applauds the right actions, doing good in the lives of his children. This is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You keep doing good. You keep doing what the Lord called you to do. You just stay at it. You stay at it. Because God applauds persistent waiting. I want you to listen to that. God applauds persistent waiting. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. There's a promise for those that are waiting on the Lord. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God applauds persistent waiting. The end of the matter is this. Don't give up. You be persistent. Because the time will come when Jesus is coming by and you need to talk with Him. You be persistent. He'll be there. The time is coming when God will respond to your prayers. You be persistent and listen close. You keep doing what the Lord called you to do even when you don't feel like it. Even when you don't feel like it. Because best I can tell, obedience does not require good feeling. Obedience just requires obedience. Just do what God says do. Do good. And you wait on the Lord and He will renew your strength. When you are worn down, you wait on the Lord. He will renew your strength. Persistence is a God-given character trait that when it defines us, it will keep us where we need to be. Persistence is a guardrail of sorts. We've been talking about that in Sunday school. That's what persistence is. It's a guardrail. Listen to Solomon. This is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Persistence. Persistence. You stay the course with the Lord. Do not give up. You stay the course with the Lord. You let persistence be the character trait that defines your faith. You stay with God. You'll never be sad you do the end of my study this week, in fact, I did this on Friday, I found myself wondering, what came of Zacchaeus? What happened after this? There's no biblical record. What happened to him? Where'd he go? Did he stay in Jericho? What happened? Well, because there's no biblical record, you have to go into some extra biblical historical accounts, and I did. And none of them were consistent. 
I couldn't find two that would agree. There's a lot of different speculation, but none authoritative enough to share it with you. So I don't really know. I wish I did. Time will come when I'm standing around a, a fire maybe in heaven with Zacchaeus, and I'm going to say to him, I just know I will. So, Zach, what happened after that? And I'm, I'm going to look forward to hearing it. I, I want to hear the rest of the story because right now I, I don't know the rest, and I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to getting to talk with him and, and find out. Until that time, though, I'm left with just speculation. And I can't help but think he went the way of another tax collector. One that we talked about just a few minutes ago. His Hebrew name is Levi. His Greek name is Matthew. Jesus called him to be a disciple. And Matthew walked out of the tax collector's booth. He walked out of an old way of life and moved into a new one. Became the author of the very first book of the New Testament. You realize that Matthew only mentions his own name twice in his own book just twice. In his list of the apostles, he ranks himself eighth. Because from that moment on, the guy who had lived a life that was all about him changed his perspective, and he lived a life that was all about Jesus. Seems like maybe Zacchaeus did the same thing. He started to live a life that was all about Jesus. People had come out of a background like Levi's, Matthew's, or Zacchaeus's, when they find that new life, man, they're zealous for it. I can't help but believe that that's what happened with Zacchaeus. He just followed Matthew's lead, became a new person, defined by Jesus. We should do the same. Persistence is a character trait. We'll bring that about, and God applauds it. Why don't you stand, and we'll pray together. Father in heaven, Zacchaeus, well, he blazed a trail, good one, that many have followed. I'm praying, Lord, that we will all follow that trail unto salvation, unto a new life. I pray that'll be the case. I know that we have some people with us that haven't made that decision yet. Salvation has not come to their house. Well, I pray they'll open the door today and they'll invite you in and their life will be different. I know we have others that are just worn down. The old way of life looks good. So I pray you'll speak to them today and tell them to stay the course, to be persistent in their faith. I know there are others that are here today that are just struggling. Father, would you lift the burden from them? Now, would you encourage them to release it? But would you lift it from them? I pray you will. In Jesus' name, amen.